In recent years, we have seen the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry explode in popularity and prevalence. But my guest on today's program says that at its worst, DEI runs from useless to counterproductive. And he thinks companies would be better off giving these lavish DEI consulting fees directly to the poor. Connor Friedersdorf is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the founding editor of The Best of Journalism, a Substack newsletter that highlights exceptional nonfiction writing. Last week, he published a piece at The Atlantic titled The DEI Industry Needs to Check Its Privilege. Connor Friedersdorf is my guest today on Lean Out. Connor, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. I've uh, followed your work for some time, so it's nice to have the chance to chat. Uh, We're going to talk today about your latest piece for The Atlantic, The DEI Industry Needs to Check Its Privilege. You write, after the murder of George Floyd, quote, a poor Black man's death became a pretext to sell hazily defined consulting services to corporations as if billions in outlays, mostly among relatively privileged corporate workers, was an apt an equitable response. Give us the broad strokes of how you think this DEI gold rush, as you put it, came about. How did we get here? I think after George Floyd's murder, there was an idea among people from all walks of society that we must never let this happen again. It was a kind of galvanizing event that, you know, I liken it in the piece to the September 11th attacks, to the assassination of Martin Luther King, moments when everyone in society sees this clear act of depravity and thinks, oh, we have to do something. And some people were positioned to do something really directly related to George Floyd's murder. If you were a police chief, if you were a city council, you could say, okay, we're going to look at our training. We're not going to allow our police officers to um, kneel on necks to restrain people, or perhaps we're going to have a duty to intervene. If you see another police officer doing that, we might have body cameras. You can think of all sorts of ways that a police department in particular might put something into place to try and prevent anything like this from happening again. And then George Floyd's life suggests other things that might be not primary causes of his death, which I think everyone agrees is the police officer who murdered him. but uh, what we've now taken to calling more systemic or institutional problems that put him in this position. And so, you know, George Floyd was someone who had a few arrests and a criminal record from earlier in his life and seemed by all accounts to earnestly try to turn his life around and had a pretty tough time doing it. And, uh, you know, why was that? You could look to addiction problems and, and you could think, Maybe if there would have been a better approach to addiction or better social services surrounding addiction, could that have helped things? You could look at poverty and, you know, he was laid off um, the last time through no fault of his own during the pandemic when things shut down. And and so, you know, would he have been trying to pass a counterfeit bill that day if there were better unemployment insurance or job retraining? Or, you know, you can think of a dozen different ways that you could improve the social safety net in America, you could reduce poverty, and um, maybe people who are kind of uh, hurting or bottom of society, the least well-off among us, 
would be helped in some way that, that would maybe reduce overall contact with law enforcement and uh, might prevent this kind of thing from happening. If you were a corporation with a workforce that was mostly college educated, that was employed full time, were you really in a position to do anything directly to stop anything like this from happening again? Um, I would say insofar as you have money that you're willing to donate to causes like the ones I've just been talking about, yes. But instead, corporations seem to respond specifically to the George Floyd moment by doing something that the corporate sector, to be clear, did long before um, this moment, which is to hire DEI consultants to come in and address staff. And you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is this kind of bundling of three concepts, all three of them, you could have an hour-long conversation about what they mean and how different people mean different things by them. And then you bundle them together and it's a whole different story. It's even more complicated of what they mean. But the way that um, the way that it's used in a lot of the DEI training slide decks and presentations and sales pitches that I've seen, um, the consultants will say things like, oh, this will help you with retention, or this will make everyone feel a bigger sense of belonging at work, or uh, this is going to help your bottom line. And all of those things may be worthy goals for a business or might be an admirable goal for society, but it's hard to see them as an apt or appropriate response to the murder of a, a poor person who is struggling with addiction. And so it struck me that this industry was kind of using this tragedy, this depravity, this terrible thing that happened in order to sell something that whether you think it's good or bad or neutral uh, in its own right, really isn't an apt response, I didn't think. And let's sort of dig into what DEI is, because as you've just pointed out, and as you've written in the past, many people talking about DEI are talking past one another. Um, I've sat through one of these trainings, given that the Atlantic runs them for new hires, maybe you have too. Um, let's talk a little bit about what we know now. There is some research data now. What is the effectiveness of DEI training? Um, in my piece, I link to this Harvard Business Review write-up of these scholars that have done what seems to me to be the best kind of meta-analysis of the most companies doing DEI. And this goes back to, uh, I believe they began in the early aughts. And they basically found that most, most DEI programming that corporations do doesn't seem to have a particular effect. There's been some scholarship, and I'm forgetting the name of the particular scholars, that show that there can be some backlash effect when you have these trainings. And um, at the same time, there are some interventions that you could think of as going under the DEI category that I would be supportive of and that I would think are effective. For example, in the world of symphony orchestras, when there are auditions, the musicians are sitting behind a screen. No one knows who they are. They're just listening to them play the music. And this is intended to uh, make it so that their appearance or their gender or their race aren't affecting the evaluation in some subconscious, unconscious bias level. Now, I'm not saying that I've delved into the scholarship on this and they've done a comparative study in orchestras that do it one way or more diverse than another, but that seems to be a 
common sense approach that would reduce any consideration of bias and reduce the perception of bias would make everyone feel like, okay, we're going to get an equal fair shot when we play the violin behind the screen, right? And so if someone said that's a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative at this symphony orchestra, I think many people would say, oh, that makes total sense. I can see how that would fall under those concepts or under that bundle of concepts. At the same time, some of the corporate trainings you'll see will try to educate the people taking the training in the difference between the concepts of equality and equity. And they will show a slide deck that kind of demonstrates these things as a subset of critical theorists understand it. And it might strike many listeners, it strikes me as a kind of leap in logic to suggest that understanding the academic definitions of these two things would necessarily change the way that coworkers relate to one another at a company that makes tennis rackets or shaving cream or whatever. Why would understanding that advance the goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion? And it's hard to find coherent explanations of that. Uh, and I've looked and I've sat through different trainings at different corporations that sometimes sources share with me. Sometimes they're posted on YouTube. And um, so I really think that Something about the vagueness and the amorphousness of the bundle of DEI kind of allows for vague and amorphous concepts to be put forth under the umbrella. And it seems to me that if what we're interested in, for example, is retaining talent, uh, you know, so we've said we're going to have a diverse workplace, we're going to recruit people from all over, but they get here and they're leaving. And we don't know why. We're losing a higher percentage of. African-American employees or Latino employees or whatever it is, female employees, we want to remedy that. You could say, okay, we're going to bring in a DEI consultant and have a training. But to me, it would make more sense not to respond to that by talking about a need for more DEI, but rather we're going to bring in someone who is an expert at retention and we're going to figure out how to retain more employees, right? There's just a more direct, a more direct thing, a more direct conceptual way to get at it. And I often think that with a lot of the most, with a lot of the things under the DEI umbrella that I'm most supportive of, it's like, well, why wouldn't you just, if what you're worried about is bigoted language, or if what you're worried about is sexual harassment, or if what you're worried about is that you have a cohort of employees who are socioeconomically poor and they can't get to work easily because they have to take the bus and the city's bus system is suffering, right? These are all very particular things that you could address in very particular ways, but it seems to me that we've abstracted anything and everything under this DEI umbrella in a way that makes it very hard to measure whether it's succeeding or not. And so, you know, in our conversation here, we've been kind of talking about two different baskets. One is how to improve work life at a given corporation, and the other is how to advance social justice in society. And I guess my perspective would be, you know, there are lots of things that might help at a corporation that may or may not improve social justice in society. And I'm all for tackling them in specific, coherent ways. And then if the question is, what do we want to do about the murder of a poor person at the hands of police, or how do we want to increase equity in society generally, probably we want to give money to the people who are worst off in our society. And I understand that's a complicated question of how you define that. Some people would want to define it in terms of class alone, in terms of 
poor people, people below the poverty line. Others might want to define it in terms of historically uh, discriminated against groups. But however you define it, whether you want it to be poor people or descendants of slaves or African-Americans or anyone who's ever been discriminated against in America, it seems to me that merely giving those people, whoever you define them, resources directly is a much better way to increase equity, the purported goal of at least a third of DEI, than filtering it through this kind of strange industry of consultants where um, no one is quite sure what the expertise is or what the product is. And the scholarship seems to suggest that it doesn't even necessarily do anything once you go through these trainings. So the issue that these trainings can be quite overtly ideological and that there is a strange kind of thing about having to agree onto a political project at work. And sure. you can you can definitely be for definitely be for wanting a more diverse workplace, a workplace in which everyone feels comfortable and welcomed, but find this method overtly political. What are your thoughts on that? I think that that's right. I think you know, I when I think of the DEI bundle, I'm personally very supportive of diversity by which I mean I think that every organization should strive to be an equal opportunity employer, should strive to recruit, not just in the personal networks of the people that are already at the top of the corporation, but you know, try and really reach out and encompass every possible qualified candidate that you can. Um, that you, know, you ought to, of course, uh, make sure that people aren't being discriminated against at work on the basis of any of the protected categories that we generally talk about. And then and then we talk about equity and and what does equity mean exactly? Different people define it in different ways. And and some people think that it instead of equality of opportunity, they define equity as equal outcomes, right? And this is, of course, a hugely um, contentious thing that in any workplace, you would have lots of people disagree about whether that's fair. I think you would be hard pressed to find a corporation that believes totally in equity, which is to say, that pays everyone exactly the same. For example, corporations tend to be very hierarchical and some people get paid different than others. Many of them pay based on performance. And so like, if they don't mean everything is equal, what exactly do they mean by equity? It's kind of hard to know whether one supports it or not because it's so hazily defined. But certainly, any way you define it, many people would disagree and I think should be able to disagree and, and still have a job and still function in the economy. And then inclusion is a bit different because it's like what on one level, do you want everyone to feel included at work? It's it's hard to find anyone who would disagree with that. But how do you do that? And you know, talking to different people at different points, not only on the ideological spectrum, but even within broad ideological identifications like conservative and progressive and libertarian and classical liberal. You'll find people in all of these ideological camps, some of whom think that the salience of race or gender should be relatively high, that we need to focus on these identity groups, that they're a huge, um, meaningful part of how our society has been organized for better or worse. And you'll find other people who think, uh, no, we ought to treat one another as individuals to the extent that we can. And yes, these categories have been locuses of discrimination in the past, and that's precisely why we need to get rid of them rather than doubling down on them. And I think that there are 
good, earnest people who are trying to improve the world who have both of these perspectives. And there's actually, I think, a lot of potential common ground at a given organization. If something is going wrong between people with these different perspectives, I can imagine a lot of things going wrong where they would actually agree, okay, this is something we need to address and remedy. But I think that you just create um, resentment and get rid of the ability for cooperation among these camps when you take either of their perspectives and one camp decides that they need to train the other camp in this way of thinking. And not only do they need to train them, but this is a mandatory thing that's happening at work. And so you start to have people, instead of sharing their earnest opinions about these things and trying to have a diversity of perspectives about how to improve them, people just kind of try and figure out what the company line is and and clam up and falsify their own preferences, their own ideas. And it's an irony that this is kind of the opposite of of diversity in one respect, that that by having a kind of official line, you're actually tamping down on the number of different perspectives and life experiences that are being marshaled to confront these problems. Mm. And also, I mean, that just leads me to another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is the role of the media here. So you point out in the piece that the industry has kind of escaped scrutiny until now, and that you are starting to see more critical media coverage of DEI. Why do you think? Um, why do you think there was less critical coverage before? What, what's changed now? Um, I think that in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder, there was a kind of um a rallying around the idea of we need to do something and DEI seemed to be the thing that we were doing. And there was a reluctance to bring normal skepticism of it in much the same way that happens uh, with lots of different issues. I would compare it to after 9-11, there was a feeling like we have to unite and do something about our country being attacked. And in the beginning, there was less skepticism of the government of things like the Patriot Act than I think that there should have been. I think you saw during the Red Scare, you saw instances of the media doing this. I think that when the Me Too movement first came about, you saw a kind of, oh, this is a long overdue reckoning. And I think it was in many respects. And at the same time, some months later, you saw some of the cases where it seemed like someone in this kind of rush to have this long overdue reckoning, some people might have been wrongly accused or mistreated. And so uh, I think, you know, journalists, media organizations are not immune from the same sorts of ideological and social pressures that apply to everyone else in society. And the uh, murder of George Floyd was a traumatic event for everyone. It was awful. It was almost universally considered an atrocity in a way that even the police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson that kind of kicked off a large part of the Black Lives Matter movement was very contested. That killing, you know, was regarded by many, especially on the ideological right as, uh, well, maybe it wasn't an unjust killing. And the Obama Justice Department ultimately concluded that that actually maybe it wasn't an unjust police killing. But the George Floyd killing, like the Rodney King beating, 
Uh, there was video of it. It was a, a huge traumatic thing. And it came at a time when I think the surrounding pandemic and the fact that many people were still working from home and were on Zoom calls, I, I think something about the mediation of electronic technology makes people unable to share differences of opinion. Uh, it makes it more difficult because if you're sitting down across from someone in person and you see their eyes and hear their tone of voice, it's a bit easier to hear perspectives different than your own and understand this is coming from a different human who seems to be well-intentioned. And when everything is mediated in an electronic way, which it was in the whole country during that time, I think it it leads to kind of big swings in, in uh, opinion a bit. And so you know, I think all of these factors are at play. I'm sure others too. It's it's so complicated to analyze the whole media and, um, you know, more and more, no one can read everything. There's there's so much. And so I'm only confident in the handful of publications I follow really closely. Mm. Um, but I think it's undeniable that there are a handful of publications, you know, that are, uh, you know, competitors of, of the Atlantic where I write, like the New York Times and and New York Magazine and the Washington Post that for whatever reason in the last year or less have kind of taken a hard look at these diversity programs and thought, you know, was this the right path? Mm. And just lastly, Connor, do you feel like the media is starting to open up a little bit in terms of viewpoint diversity? My my experience in 2020 is that the I was in the mainstream media at that point, that the range of allowable perspectives really narrowed. And I do feel like it's starting to open up more now. What are your thoughts? What do you think? Um, you know, it's hard to say. You know, the place I know best is the Atlantic. I've been there more than 10 years. I've always felt very lucky there to be able to come down wherever I come down on different issues as someone who doesn't always come down aligned with any political or ideological movement. And that's kind of built into the DNA of the Atlantic. The one of the founding motto is of no party or clique. And, you know, of course, any value like that is always instantiated imperfectly in any organization. And so I don't want to hold us out as perfect in that respect. But I do think I've always had colleagues with a pretty wide diversity of views on different issues. And I I love that. I want people who disagree with me to be writing in the same pages. And I think something about being under the same roof with collegiality and a common group of readers sharpens both kind of perspectives when when people are in disagreement. You know, I've also watched other organizations. James Bennett was the editor of The Atlantic before he was at the New York Times and was famously fired over publishing an op-ed. I remember Ian Baruma at the New York Review of Books was fired during the Me Too era for publishing an essay from uh, someone who is accused of misconduct. And my old boss, Andrew Sullivan, uh, was fired from New York Magazine. And uh, I've seen some of these people, uh, you know, Matt Iglesias wasn't fired from Vox, but did leave Vox, you know, feeling like it was harder and harder for him to say what he thought in their pages. And uh, some of these people are thriving on Substack. You see new things like Barry Weiss, who also left the Times for reasons partly to do with ideology, has the free press and, and seems to be very successful so far. And I, I don't know whether that kind of economic pressure from 
upstart competitors is forcing media organizations to kind of compete for those readers who are maybe leaving and subscribing elsewhere, or if uh, or if we're going to keep going down the same direction of just more and more different outlets and no kind of common public square. And I, I think, you know, if I started to see some of the people who went to Substack being recruited back into media organizations, I would look to that as a sure sign that, oh, we are broadening out again. But um, but yeah, I would say, I think that people are less in fear of losing their jobs for saying the wrong thing than they were maybe in 2019 and 2020. But I don't know if, I don't think that we've rebounded so far that, um, you know, the media is as kind of ideologically diverse and open to different viewpoints as it was as recently as 2013 or 2014. I would think that we're uh, maybe in a worse spot compared to then by my lights. But who knows what will happen? If there's one thing that uh, I've learned in the last 10 years of digital media, it's just that things change so quickly. And I remember eras when what mattered most was Google keyword searches. And then it was, oh, what's Facebook's algorithm, right? And um, so who knows what will be next? Maybe maybe AI will throw us a curveball that neither <laughs> of us can even comprehend. <laughs> well, Connor, I really appreciate you taking the time today. It's it's great to get to talk through this uh, kind of thorny issues in our culture. And, and uh, I really admire your work. So thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Lean Out will be off on our annual summer hiatus for the next few weeks, but we will be back at the end of June with more conversations with heterodox writers and thinkers from around the world.